Good morning again. As always, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here to preach the word to you this morning. Um, as I was going through preparing this sermon, I know, my mind goes off on, on rabbit trails sometimes. Did you ever sit there and focus on something and 10 minutes later you're on something else and you're like, how did I get here? Did ever happen to you? Well, I, I came to the conclusion that I and all of you and most American Christians are just way too comfortable with our Christianity the way that we practice it, aren't we? Right? So here's what I'm going to ask you to do this morning. I want us to get uncomfortable for Jesus. Wherever you're sitting, get up now and go sit in a different section. If you're able, get up and go move. Some of you are now going to be in a different spot. You've probably sat in the same spot, some of you, for 20 years. Yeah. And now we have a bit of a different perspective. Things aren't quite as comfortable as they usually are, are they? So let's keep in mind the fact that we tend to get very comfortable wherever we are. Whether it's a seat in church, or whether it's where we are in our walk with Christ. Now last week we saw the anointing of Saul as the first human king of Israel. Of course, Yahweh was king, but Israel wanted a king like the nations around them. So God chose Saul, and God was now going to make it public knowledge to all of Israel that Saul was the one that he chose. As we go through, we're going to see one more time the tendency of the human heart, the weakness of our humanity. We're actually going to see man act a lot more in this passage than God, because sometimes God just lets us be what we are in order to show us what we tend to be. And we tend to get very comfortable. I want to see that sometimes we just get very comfortable. We don't move. We like where we are. And I hope that going through this passage and seeing this makes us all very uncomfortable today. So, let's dive in. 1 Samuel, chapter 10, verse 17, we read, Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mitzpah. So Samuel and God are about to give Israel what they want. And Samuel calls the people together at Mitzpah. Now why does he call them at Mitzpah? Well, the word Mitzpah in Hebrew means literally a place to watch from. We first see this name back in Genesis 31, when Laban and Jacob separate, if you know the story. They have a line between them. They agree never to cross again. And Laban tells Jacob, who was his father-in-law twice over, by the way. He married both his daughters. He says, hey, Jacob, listen. Even though I'm not watching, God is. So you better treat them right. And Laban names that place where they separate Mitzpah. So it's a place to watch from, but it is specifically a place that God watches from. Well, this mitzvah, though not the same location, carries the same name. And we see it is much more than just a name. We've already been to this mitzvah in the book of 1 Samuel. And Samuel calls the people here because in addition to the verbal admonishment that God is really going to give to the people of Israel here, there's an object lesson happening here. Let's back up a few weeks, our time, and a few decades, their time. Remember when Saul called Israel back to God after 20 years of them pushing the ark and God off to the side. He calls them to put away their foreign gods, to direct their hearts to the Lord. And this is what we read in 1 Samuel 7. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mitzpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mitzpah, and drew water and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said, there we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mitzpah. Then when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mitzpah, the Lord of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, 
They were afraid of the Philistines. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. The Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And then the men of Israel went out from Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Beth Car. So all of this happened at Mitzpah, at this spot. Here at Mitzpah, God watched, and he saw his people repent and turn to him. He watched and he heard the prayer of Samuel and he answered. He watched and he saw Israel's enemies come against them and he defeated them. So here, when we read, Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mitzpah, Samuel called them back to the very place at which they had turned their hearts back to Yahweh all those years ago. He called them back to where God showed up for them. He called them back to where God provided exactly what they needed. He called them back to where God showed himself mighty to save in giving them victory. And he called them back here now because they had forgotten God again. They forgot all that God had done at this very spot. In fact, they seemed to have forgotten everything God had done for them. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mitzpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, and from the hand of all of the kingdoms that were oppressing you. God just basically covered the books of, of Exodus through Judges. Basically everything that happened up until 1 Samuel. He is the God who acted on their behalf in Egypt. What they couldn't do for themselves, he did for them. He showed himself as all-powerful, as sovereign over all, and he used that sovereignty to save them. And then he preserved them in the wilderness, giving them victory over all those that came against them. And then he fought for them against the Canaanites. He defeated the people in the land. He worked his miraculous power to give Israel victory at Jericho when the walls fell. He made the sun stand still when Israel defeated the Amorites. And he was patient with them in the time of the judges. Remember, no matter how far they strayed from him, no matter how long they had turned their backs on him, he was always right there to deliver them when they turned back to him. And time and time again, he defeated all the nations that came against his people, and he graciously restored them. He delivered them from every enemy, from every trial, and provided for every need. And they forgot all about that here. Why? Well, because of what was going on around them. Remember, this whole demand for a king started because of the political turmoil in Israel. They didn't like the situation. They saw the wickedness of Samuel's sons. They saw that, that Samuel was getting old. And they said, we need to do something about this. We. They said, we need to do something about this. Well, that's a very comfortable reaction, isn't it? Let's do what we want to do. Let's just get a king like the nations. See, they've forgotten how God had provided for them. How he empowered people like Moses and Aaron. How he hardened Pharaoh to work the salvation of the Exodus. They forgot how God provided Rahab in Jericho and the faithful Joshua to lead them against the Amorites. They forgot how he provided faithful judges like, like Othiel and Deborah. Some more questionable judges like uh, Barak and Jephthah. Downright arrogant judges like Samson. And yet he used them all to deliver his people. They already forgot how he took care of that whole Eli and his sons thing 30 years before this. They forgot how he thundered from heaven and defeated the Philistines years before this. They forgot how he was always, 
always watching his people from his place in heaven. The cosmic mitzvah, if you will. How he always kept his eyes on his people and watched and took action for them every single time. And what was wrong with Israel here? Well, they're like us. They're human. And the human heart forgets. That whole, what have you done for me lately mentality even seeps into our Christianity. And somehow, everything that's happened no longer matters depending on the situation, right? It's this situation that matters. What I'm going through right now, this, my circumstances right now, at this moment, that's all that matters. And you know what? I don't like these circumstances, and God is letting them happen, so you know what? I'm going to do something about this. Oh, it's not Israel, that's us. That's what they did here. Here at Mitzpah, the place that God looked upon his people, the place where God already proved to be their only help. He watched them humble themselves and repent and turn wholeheartedly back to them here. And now in the very same spot, he watches them just reject him. Verse 19, but today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you've said to him, set a king over us. See, God points back to everything he did, the the salvation, the provision, the control over every earthly circumstance, no matter how good or bad it seemed, and he used it all ultimately for their good. And here, he's contrasting that with what his people were doing. He's saying, hey, I did all that. I took you this far. I've given you everything you've needed. Now you're rejecting me. Look at what you're doing. I saved you. And now you just want to go your own way. You just want to go the way of the world. You know, if we're going to be honest, being like the rest of the world is very comfortable, isn't it? Acting like everybody around us is just more comfortable. See, God called Israel, his people, to be different from the world in almost every single way, and they actively sought to be just like everybody else. Because you know what? Being different is uncomfortable. It goes against every natural instinct we have. Nobody wants to stand out from the crowd that way. Sure, we'll stand out from the crowd if we can do what the world does, only do it better. We want to stand out from the crowd being better at what the world values. But to be different for Jesus, to stand out and be obviously different than the rest of the world, knowing that God has called us to be that different, Not always so comfortable. Israel here chose comfortable. And this is a turning point in the history of Israel. Their desire for a king like the nations would end up up making them just like the other nations in God's eyes. I mean, they already were like the other nations, right? Let's be honest. They already worshipped false gods. They already disobeyed God. That's why God says over and over through his prophets, hey, you guys have been disobedient from the start. And he tells them, this is why you're going to be forsaken. And when God forsakes the nation, he calls out the kings. He says, you, kings, you were responsible for my people. You were responsible for the direction of a nation, and you failed. And if you read the history, most of the kings, including the first king, Saul, they weren't very good kings. And whether a good king or a bad king was in power, whether a king that led the people into righteousness and obedience or a king that was wicked and led them away from God, Israel only ever got what they asked for. And the same goes for us. Us as spiritual people, his church. Sometimes God will give us what we want. Like I said, 
If we ask God for less than Jesus, sometimes he'll let us have what we ask for. Like God gives Israel what they want here. He says, today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you've said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Now, God, remember, God gets to choose the king. It was in to give them the king they wanted. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by his clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. Now, casting lots in the Old Testament was used as a means of determining God's will in certain situations. Solomon tells us in Proverbs 16.33 that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The, Israels, the Israelites didn't look at casting lots as a game of chance. They weren't playing dice. They believed God communicated to them through the casting of lots. Now, we don't need to do this. I don't suggest you doing this by any stretch, because remember, we have God's completed revelation. God has already told us all we need to know. But in the Old Testament, this was a legitimate means of determining God's will. And there's no rules given for casting lots in the Bible, but in other cultures of the time, basically, stones would be cast two different colors. One would be a yes, one would be a no. Or they'd mark the stones to give them... Maybe they marked 12 stones of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they cast the stones, and whichever one was closest to the wall, that was the tribe God chose. And they go through this, and Saul is selected. Now, we already know, right? We already read this last week when Pastor David preached. We already know Saul's going to win this one, right? We know what the lots are going to show here. Saul was going to be king. And we saw he was exactly what those who desire an earthly king like the nations would want. He was rich. He came from money. Last week, the narrative introduces Saul, and it says that he is the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who was a man of wealth. So he comes from a rich family. Now, in the West today, we kind of know something about only the rich being in power, don't we? See, what the world desires hasn't changed all that much. Saul was tall. We are told that he was the next tallest guy in Israel only came to his shoulders. Maybe it's hyperbole, I don't know. Either way, Saul's physically impressive, too. He's huge, and we're told he's handsome. He was more handsome than anybody else in Israel. I mean, Saul is like Prince Charming. He's like a Ken doll come to life. He is every leading man in a Hallmark movie and then some. What the world desires really hasn't changed much, has it? And the reason the book of 1 Samuel describes him in such great detail is because there's going to be a contrast drawn between what the world finds important and impressive and what God says is important and impressive. Because later we'll see a description of David, the second king, the next king God chooses for Israel. Now, we're told he's handsome, but he's no Saul physically. And he ain't rich. He's just a blue-collar man. And I submit to you that David is actually the king that God chooses to reign over his people, and Saul is an object lesson for them. Remember, God gives us what we want sometimes. But God also always gives us what we need. So Israel asked for a king, and God gave them David, and he just didn't take the direct route to do it. And God will choose David because David is a man of God. David was spiritually impressive. He wasn't perfect, but his faith is what made him suitable to lead God's people. But we'll get to that. For now, Israel would have Saul as king, if they could just find the guy. Verse 20, then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. 
And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. Remember, we aren't the only people who know at this point in the story that Saul was going to be chosen. You know who else knew? Samuel and Saul. God told Samuel it was going to happen. And here's Samuel. He didn't like the whole idea of the king to begin with. But he's here. He's obedient to God, even though he is very uncomfortable with what's going on. Saul knew it was going to happen. Saul knew what God called him to. Saul knew what God told him to do. And Saul ran. And we see something of the character of this king. Maybe it was anxiety. Maybe Saul got nervous that such a, a, a momentous responsibility was being placed on his very big shoulders. Maybe being in a spotlight like that just made him uncomfortable. Maybe he had a genuine sense of unworthiness. We saw last week, Saul says, me, but you know, I'm from the smallest tribe in Israel. I'm from the least important clan in that tribe. And as we go along in the book, we're going to see Saul has some major fear issues, mostly because he didn't fear God. I don't know what Saul was feeling. I don't know how he rationalized not being where God told him to very clearly be. All I know is that Saul was disobedient. God made it clear to Saul what he had to do. He confirmed it to Saul through prophecy, through the giving of a spirit and a new heart we saw to him. And yet Saul just didn't do it. Are we ever like Saul? I mean, do we ever know clearly what God tells us to do, yet we rationalize not doing it? I mean, I know we can come up with great reasons why we don't do the things God calls us to do. We're very good at rationalizing things. I'm actually a specialist. We can talk later. I'm sure we can look at what God calls us to in the Bible and we can say, well, that's out of my comfort zone. And that's enough for us to disobey. Because we are more comfortable usually disobeying God than we are stepping out in faith. I'm sure we can say, I'm not qualified. Like Saul, I'm not worthy. Maybe we say, I'm not ready yet. And that's enough to disobey. Because we're not comfortable with what God tells us Unless we agree. We're not comfortable placing our confidence in our God, usually, unless we're confident enough in ourselves that we can do what he's called us to do. Like we just look at what we're very clearly called to do and we excuse ourselves from it. Why? Well, I I just don't think I can do it. I I don't think I'm able. I'm just not comfortable. Well, I'm going to give you an encouragement this morning that will banish all these thoughts from your mind. Ready? We're not able. We're just not. But brothers and sisters, God is. See, it's a matter of where our confidence is. Who is our confidence in? And the sadly ironic part is that I have done many things where I have placed confidence in myself, and I have failed many times. And I have placed my confidence in God many times, and he has never failed. Yet I still tend that way. I'll still place my confidence in me rather than God. And for whatever reason, I don't know the reason, but that's what Saul was doing. Again, verse 21, he brought the tribe of Benjamin nearby its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot. When they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again to the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Now make no mistake, Saul's hiding from God here. He's hiding from what God called him to do. He knew what the lots would say. He knew full well that he was going to be chosen, but he's hiding instead. 
And here the people inquire of the Lord, probably not through casting lots. I mean, there's a prophet standing right there, and he already knew who this other man was going to be. But just know what happens. God tells Saul what he has to do. Saul doesn't do it. But God gets his way anyway. I mean, eventually, we're all going to have to answer for we disobey God. And God tells the people exactly who's chosen, and they tell them exactly where to find them. See, God gets his way. Whether we go along with the plan or not, God always gets his way. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. So again, we're told what we saw last week in chapter 9. Saul is by far the tallest man in Israel. And there are really a few things going on here. Like I said, God chooses this outwardly impressive man to be king. But we've already seen that inwardly, Saul's not so strong, is he? See, rather than fear the Lord, Saul feared a lot of other things. He was a lot more comfortable playing it safe than obeying what God clearly told him. Again, there's a contrast being shown here between what worldly strength is and what spiritual strength is. Saul had one in great measure, but not so much of the other. Just like the kings of the nations around Israel. I mean, he is exactly what Israel asked for, isn't he? And second, in the context of what was going on around Israel and the nations they wanted to be like, I think God is making a statement about himself compared to these other gods, like the gods of the Canaanites and the gods of the Philistines we've talked about. And the Old Testament does this continually. So much of the Old Testament mocks the other so-called gods of the nations and shows how Yahweh is over them, how he is God most high, how he is the one true God. Now, from around the time that this was written around the 11th century B.C., we have plenty of ancient texts from the surrounding nations, from the Canaanites, from the Amorites. And in one of these texts about Baal, who was the major deity of the Canaanites, we have a story. The people wanted a king to replace Baal. And the sea goddess, Adaratu, gives her son Adaru. But there's a problem with Adaru. He's so short that the people reject him. They describe him on the throne like this. They say, but his feet do not even reach the footstool. His head does not even reach the top of the throne. And they are convinced, basically because of his size, that he's no king. They're afraid he's going to be too weak to defend them against a competing god who is none other than Dagon, who we've also met. We know he's gods already from 1 Samuel. So unlike them, God gives the people of Israel a king, a big king. Because he knows if you see with worldly eyes, you're going to say, I trust this guy to defeat my enemies. We'll see how that goes later in the book. Point being, God shows he can appoint a king like no other god can. And he's showing that in Saul, because of his physical stature here, he's teaching Israel a lesson, right? For Israel, God's given them the biggest, tallest man in the entire nation, because so he knows they're seeing with worldly eyes. They're acting like the people around them. And he says, look at what I gave you. That's what Samuel says. When he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, there's a tinge of sarcasm here. Do you see whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Samuel's aware of what God is doing here. He says, look, everyone. Look at this fine specimen God has chosen to be our king. Look how impressive he is. He's big. He's strong. Enjoy. Enjoy.
And the people celebrate. Long live the king. Yeah. Look at this guy. He's like a linebacker. He's awesome. He'll defeat our enemies. But Samuel isn't done. He shows the people their king. You, you know, the guy who was just hiding, not wanting to be here, who they now think is going to lead them in victory. That's beside the point. Samuel reminds them what the rules are for kings. And Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. We touched on this a few weeks ago. The, the rights and the duties of the kingship are laid out in Deuteronomy 17. Let's go there, beginning in verse 14. Yahweh said to Israel, when you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers, you shall set his king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you, who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and these statutes, and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, even to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. And if we apply this to the whole history of Israel, knowing what God calls kings to do and what he promises them, we see that the wicked kings of the northern kingdom of Israel don't have long dynasties on the throne. And in the southern kingdom, where David reigns, well, there's a dynasty only from the family of David. And if we apply this to the whole history of redemption, we see that the king thing didn't work out very good for Israel, now did it? But we see that today, there is still a son of David on the throne, don't we? That's God's point. See, we'll see in the book of 1 Samuel, Saul doesn't establish a dynasty. We've already seen he has some fear issues. And his, his biggest issue is that he doesn't fear Yahweh. Remember, none of the kings, not even David, kept all of these rules. The difference between the good kings and the bad kings was their fear of God. The difference was their faith in God. The difference was whether the king was spiritually strong in Christ and not physically strong. It had nothing to do with the physical strength of the king or the wealth of the king or what he looked like. It was about whether or not the king worshipped the king. And we'll see whether or not Saul does in a few weeks. Again, verse 25, And Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. Now note here, Saul is supernaturally chosen as the first king of Israel. The people are awfully impressive, and they shout, Long live the king! Then Samuel gives his charge to Saul in front of all the people. Gives him the laws Yahweh gives for the kingship. And then everybody goes home. Even Saul. Kind of anticlimactic, isn't it? Well, in the ancient Near East, once someone was pronounced king, he could not officially take the throne until he led his people in a military victory. 
And this is why the people said back in 1 Samuel 8, No, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So until Saul wins in battle, he's not really the king. And that's why we read, Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. Just like God had always provided for Israel, granting them people of faith to do what they need to do, like Moses, Joshua, the judges. Here God touches the heart of some of the men, and they come alongside Saul. God is again providing his people and the king everything he needs to do what God has called him to do. God always provides his people with what we need to do what he calls us to do. That doesn't mean there won't be opposition. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. So we see that Saul, the newly appointed king, he has his supporters and he has his detractors. That these people brought him no present, it means that they refuse to acknowledge him as king. This is the equivalent of all those not-my-president bumper stickers that have become so popular in the last 10 years. So we understand this, right? Because again, you know, what man wants hasn't changed much in 3,000 years. So these men don't want to acknowledge Saul as their king. And it, it isn't because they were concerned with the honor of Yahweh. We're told here they were worthless fellows. In Hebrew, it's sons of Belial. It means something like sons of no prophet. There, there was nothing good about these men. It's the same exact way we see Eli's sons described in 1 Samuel 2. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Same exact Hebrew phrase is used here. Remember what Eli's sons were all about. They didn't know the Lord. They didn't care about the Lord. They cared about themselves. They were all about what they could get. So here, when we read, some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Now, these men weren't against the idea of a king. They just don't like the choice. And besides, I mean, besides the fact this guy was just hiding out, maybe they don't trust him to actually lead them into battle. I'd have my doubts. But like I said, the Bible here tells us they were worthless. We know there's more wickedness behind this than just that. You know, maybe they have their ideas of what a king should be. And an insignificant man from an insignificant tribe just doesn't do it for them. Maybe they saw no way for themselves to gain from this because they had no connection to Saul. Maybe they just don't like him. I don't know. But here's what we do know. There's a contrast being drawn between those whose hearts God touches, who determine to go along with his will, and there are those who, for whatever the reason may be, are determined to go against his will. In other words, even though the circumstances were far from perfect, I mean, Israel did sin as a whole by wanting a king, right? Nevertheless, this was now the situation they were in, and God made his will clear. And in even less than perfect circumstances, there is no excuse for not following God's will. I'm sure they rationalized it. I'm sure they did. But it's like Saul hiding from his responsibilities. These men were being disobedient. And that's where the chapter ends. That's how the event ends. We see everything man does wrong. Now, what does any of this have to do with us? How does a disobedient nation, a very reluctant king, and a less than perfect situation from 3,000 years ago have any bearing on us? 
Remember what we said at the outset of a series. The Old Testament reveals two things to us over and over again. It reveals the heart and character of God who does not change. Right? God is the same at this moment we're reading than he is right now. The God who acted for his people at Mitzpah 30 years before us is the same God watching us right now. God does not change. But the Old Testament also reveals to us the heart of man. And as we saw today, that hasn't changed much in 3,000 years either. And as Pastor David mentioned last week, the Bible tells us that these histories are recorded for our sake. New Testament tells us for those upon whom the end of the age has come. In other words, the, the book of 1 Samuel is for us, it's for the church. So I want to draw a few conclusions for our passage today that are relevant to us. First, I want us to realize that, just like man did 3,000 years ago, like Israel did, when our circumstances aren't what we want them to be, the first thing we do is forget God. This is what we tend to do. We need to remember. Israel saw what was going on around them. Saul didn't want to take responsibility and do what God clearly told him to do because he didn't like it. These worthless men forgot God and just didn't do it because they didn't get what they wanted. And for us, when we're in a trial or when there's turmoil around us or we want to rationalize not taking our responsibilities to God very seriously or sometimes, even when we just don't get what we want... We forget God. We forget what he's told us and we disobey. I mean, I can tell you stories. I've heard it from so many Christians. Man, you know, I remember when I was first saved. It was great. Everything was new. I was reading my Bible every day. I consumed it like Thanksgiving dinner. And then, well, circumstances changed. I don't have that same zeal anymore. I've heard it from people. In this church and in other churches. And when they first started going to a new church, how great it was. Oh, it was wonderful. Everyone was so nice. The pastor was awesome. And then inevitably, well, no, it just wasn't for me. You know, I didn't agree 100% with what leadership did. In other words, I didn't get my way. So that honeymoon ended really quickly. I've seen Christians with this unhealthy focus, as I've said, on this whole idea of my Christianity is all about me and my personal relationship with Jesus. And they say, of course I love Jesus. I accepted Jesus. I just don't serve him and his people. Let the elders do it. I'm not qualified. I'm not ready. I'm not confident enough in me. I'm not comfortable doing any of that. They said earlier regarding Israel, in the event we looked at today, I said God constantly points them back to everything he did. The salvation, the provision, the control over earthly circumstances, all ultimately for their good. And he contrasts that with what his people were doing right then. What Israel was doing right then did not at all line up with who God was and what he had done for them. And what he called them to do in light of who he was and what he had done for them. So our question today is, if we, if everybody here, if we're going to take all that God has done for us, take what God has called us to do in light of what he has done for us, and look at what we do, look at how we're living in the here and now, my question is, how do we fare? Maybe we fare great. Hallelujah. Praise God. But maybe we don't. 
We just remember what God has done. God has acted on our behalf. What we couldn't do for ourselves, God did for us. He showed himself as all-powerful, as sovereign over all, by becoming weak for our sake. And then he used his sovereignty, his power, to save us. And then he has preserved us. He has preserved his church as we have walked through history. And we have gone through some very dark times as a people, let me tell you. He has given his church victory over those that have come against us. He fought for us. He defeated the sin within us. He overcame death for us. He is patient with us. No matter how far we stray from him, he's always right there to deliver us if we will just turn back to him. Our God has delivered us from every enemy. He has delivered us from every trial and provided every single thing we need. What are we doing with that? Second, let's decide this morning where we want our confidence to be. Because just like Saul, just like these worthless men, listen, when we know what God calls us to do and we don't do it, we can rationalize it. There might be reasons that everyone else thinks are good reasons. But it's disobedience. God has told us very clearly what he wants from us. God confirms it to us in his word, written, preached, through his spirit that dwells in us, through other Christians. He makes it very clear what it is he wants from us. Are we comfortable disobeying anyway? Are we comfortable rationalizing what God, not doing what God calls us to do, like Israel or Saul or these other men? And this is why we need to look at all that God has done. Because what God did, he did for our sake. Everything God does, he does for our sake. He saves us. He protects us. He provides for us. He empowers us. Our God acts for the sake of his people. What Saul did in our passage, hiding from his responsibility, he did for Saul's sake. Not Israel's sake. Surely not God's sake. He did it for Saul's sake. So let's ask ourselves, for whose sake do we do what we do? Because rationalizing away our responsibility as God's elect, and we've all done it, justifying to ourselves not doing what we know God calls us to do, well, we do that for our sake. And just like 3,000 years ago, this is what the human heart tends to do. We need to look back at what God has done for our sake and ask ourselves, how can I not do what God calls me to do for his sake and for the sake of a church? And what is it God has done? Well, that's the third thing. Let's realize. God has given us a king. As I said, David was the king God chose, but he chose David to point us to the true king. Jesus Christ is the king that God has chosen to reign over his people. And the king stepped down from his throne and did everything for the sake of his people. The king didn't back down from what he was called to do. The king, he took his responsibility very seriously in everything he did. He didn't do for his sake. He did for the sake of God and his people. The king gave up his glory for us. 
And he served us. He humbled himself that we may be exalted. He laid down his life for our sake so we could live. And our king, he won the battle. He won the battle for us and ascended to his throne. Jesus Christ has earned his kingship. I thank God that he has. Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look, not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, said at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is our King. And he has called us, his church, to do exactly that, what we just read. There's plenty in the Bible that tells us exactly what God wants us to do, and we need to remember, God gets his way whether we go along with the plan or not. Look, those men may not have wanted Saul, but Saul was going to reign. They didn't want it to be God's way, but God was going to have his way. And we may, at times, not want it God's way. We may forget what our king has done. We may forget who really gets to call the shots. But you know what? When we do that, we look at the king that God has chosen, Jesus Christ, and we say with our actions to each other and the whole world, how can this man save us? This man. Our king. God in the flesh. Brothers and sisters, he's the only one that can save us. So I ask you this morning, if you don't know Christ, if you've never bowed to the king, please hear me, there is a king that reigns. And he is a king that loves. And he is a king that gives. And he is a king that is only ever good. Bow before his throne today. Montclair Community Church, we need to bow ourselves before the king today. We need to come back to his throne day by day and bow ourselves to him again. Because listen, if we, as a church, if we are not growing in our salvation, if we are not becoming more obedient, if we are not growing in holiness, if we are not doing more and more for the sake of God and his people, then we have forgotten our king and what he's done. We take our confidence out of ourselves and place it in him and step out in faith. No matter how uncomfortable it is, step out and do what God has called us to do.
Like Saul, you know what we need to do? We need to step out from our own baggage. We need to stop hiding from our responsibility to be what God has called us to be. Not as we think it should be. Not what we like. Not what's comfortable. What God says we should be. We can place our confidence in him because he never fails. He never has and he never will. I'm asking us all to get uncomfortable. Let's each of us do whatever it is that we've been avoiding. Let's do it until we're comfortable with it. So I'm going to ask you all this week, take one step, listen, one step. Do one thing this week for Jesus that makes you uncomfortable. Maybe personal evangelism is tough for you. Maybe you have trouble telling people about Jesus and what he's done for you. You know somebody that needs to hear that. Tell them this week. Maybe praying aloud with people is hard for you. Well, you're all in different spots. You're going to all be confused when you get up at the end of service. Find somebody, somebody you don't even know, and pray with them today for after service. If you're not serving, serve. Maybe you think, I can't do that. I'm not qualified to do that. None of us are. God is. Maybe you need to go and find that person that you've been holding a grudge against. Maybe for years. Maybe you need to forgive them. And go and tell them, I forgive you. Like I said, there's a whole host of practical things the Bible calls us to do that we can do, but we're not because we're uncomfortable with it. Let's stop being comfortable, rationalizing, not doing what God has called us to do. And let's be a church that is willing to get uncomfortable for Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, we thank you, God. We thank you that we can come together on a Sunday morning, Lord, without any fear. That we can come together freely and sing your praises, hear your word, fellowship together as the saints, God. But God, sometimes we're just so comfortable doing what we always do. Coming here because it's what we do singing to you because it's what we do. Lord, shake us out of our comfort zone, each and every one of us. Help us each to step out in faith that your light may shine brighter in this church and brighter in each of us. Help us, God, not to seek worldly comfort, but to seek you to diligently search your word, to see what you call us to. To be on our knees praying that you would empower us by your spirit to do those things. And Lord, together, taking steps of faith, being uncomfortable for you together, so that you can work through this church, that souls can be saved, that people can see your salvation and know Jesus Christ. We thank you. We thank you, God of all comfort, 
for giving us everything we need, for doing everything that needed doing to make us yours. So help us, Lord, today to bow at your throne and say, here we are. Have your way in us, God. That's our prayer. We love you. We praise you. We exalt you. We want you to be glorified with every deed and every word and every thought, God. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.